The Old Testament lesson is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, verses 14 through 21. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face, and I was angry. But he went on backsliding on his way in his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot be quiet, and the waters toss up mire and dirt, and there is no peace, says my God for the wicked. The word of the Lord. The psalm is Psalm 50, verses 1 through 15. We'll read responsively by whole verse. The mighty one, the Lord, the God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of, of the sun to its setting. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, and around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The New Testament lesson is Ephesians 2, verses 11, through verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 13. No, it's not. Oh, 11 to 22. I'm looking at my email. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down, uh, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, and through the cross thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by, for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It says that our gospel lesson is from Matthew 16. I actually called an audible last night. It's still in Matthew. We just backed up a chapter. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 27. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory is to you, And Jesus went away and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, please help me. And he answered her, It is not right to take the bread for children and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as your desire, as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, pull it out and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's about 80% of the way into the Bible. It's the um, seventh book of the New Testament. Sorry, I'm just, we have new technology today and I'm fiddling with it. We're continuing a series in Ephesians where Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, the New Testament church, and he's instructing them on who they are and who they're called to be. Basically, he's telling them in the first two chapters that God has set apart a people for himself and that that people is them, that it's the church. There are examples all through the Bible of God showing that he has is, he is set apart a people for himself and that he has, he has then given them his blessing. Now, this can, to some people, especially a modern audience, actually sound very unfair. 
Why, why would God not bring everyone into his covenant community? Why would God pick certain people to set them apart and bless them? For instance, why did he, in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, why did he select Abraham and his descendants, the people that eventually became the nation of Israel, why did he select them and them specifically to receive his, his unilateral, one-way covenant of grace? In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to bless you. And he said, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you can actually be a blessing. He said, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, through you, all of the families of the world are going to be blessed. And then in Genesis 15, three chapters later, he restates that promise to Abraham and all his descendants. And Abraham said, how can, this, how can I be sure that these things are going to happen, God? And then God used a, a, a covenant-making ceremony that was very common in that time and place, so Abraham would have recognized what was going on. God said to Abraham, go bring me these three specific animals. Bring me a heifer three years old, bring me a female goat three years old, bring me a ram three years old, uh, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And Abraham, without being told what to do with them, he knew exactly what was going on because this was a very common thing at that time. And so he brought them before, he brought them to God. Abraham brought the animals and he killed them. And he divided their remains in two and spread them out so that there was almost an aisle formed between them. This was actually a very traditional peace treaty ceremony. It's what happened when a greater king would conquer a lesser king, and they would make a peace treaty. They would make what was called a covenant. And they would take these animals, they would sacrifice them, they would divide them in two, and then they would walk down the aisle between these two groups of divided, murdered animals. And basically, what the, as they were doing that, they would sign the peace treaty. And what they were saying, in effect, was, if either one of us breaks this treaty, may this happen to us. So that's, what's God, that's what God was doing with Abraham. But at that time, in Genesis 15, when he shows Abraham this promise, he's the only one that walks between the animals. He doesn't make Abraham do it. This is a one-way covenant of grace that God selected Abraham through nothing that Abraham had done. And God said, here's how I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to keep my word. Because Abraham had said, how do I know that this is going to happen? And God walked through these animals, showing Abraham in a language that he would understand and with symbols that he would understand. If I break my word on this, I'm going to tear myself in half. And that's the... That's the sign and the promise that God gave to Abraham. That he would be his God, that he would bless Abraham, that he would have a nation, that he would have children, and that he would be a blessing to the world. That's the blessing that Abraham and his descendants got. Abraham, his 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel, and then all the future descendants and servants and members of those households. And no one else at that time got that blessing. God, in fact, gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites. But there were already people living there. There were seven nations living in the land of Canaan. They didn't get the blessing. They actually got tossed out of the land because of their wickedness. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the other four ites, they didn't get the blessing of God. They weren't set aside to be his covenant people. They didn't even get to keep their land. 
And that doesn't seem fair. But there might have been one verse in that passage in Genesis 12 that I read that you missed. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great so that you might be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you. And through you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that blessing that God gave Abraham was not just exclusively for Abraham and his descendants. God blessed Abraham in order that he could be a blessing. Because we see throughout the Old Testament that although all of the descendants of Abraham disobeyed God, and although they turned their back on God, still God used his covenant people to be a blessing to the nations around them. Amorites were brought into the covenant family of Israel. Hittites brought into the covenant family of Israel. God's blessing was first and foremost to the people of Israel, but then it also flowed out to others. And we see that pattern over and over. And so for the rest of the Old Testament, there is this dividing wall between Israel and the nations, as they're often called, or Israel and the Gentiles. Israel is perpetually smaller and weaker. And in fact, that's why God chose them, so that his name could be glorified through their weakness, because they had, God, they had God's favor. And so when they walked in his ways, they were actually given victory over their bigger and stronger opponents. And so then the surrounding nations, or the Gentiles, tried to take over Israel. And yet, every time they tried, God would either permit it, or he would he would secure the victory for Israel. But God was in control of this tiny covenant nation family of Israel. And so I realize that this is a big wind-up going from Genesis 12 all the way to Ephesians to get into our text today, but stay with me. Because this idea of the dividing line between Jews and Gentiles is throughout the Bible, and it's even in our gospel reading today. And this can be a hard reading for people to hear. Jesus goes to meet a woman whose daughter is dying. And she's a Canaanite woman. In Abraham's time, remember, it was Abraham and his descendants who got God's blessing, not the Canaanite people that lived in that land. And so now it's about 1,800 years after Abraham, but this woman that Jesus is meeting is still a descendant of those same Canaanite people. A Canaanite woman whose daughter is dying. This is a, a second-class citizen in Israel. And so Jesus rolls up to her, and she's crying out to him, Jesus, son of David. She's basically acknowledging his place as a Jewish Messiah. She's saying, Jesus, son of David, please help my daughter. And so Jesus rolls up on her, and instead of saying, oh my goodness, you, you poor woman, I'm so sorry that you are going through this. This must be incredibly hard for you. Or even saying, oh, this, is, this is awful. Let's fix this right away, because I'm literally Jesus. No, he says, in effect, why are you bothering me? I didn't come here for your kind. I came to redeem and restore the lost people of Israel. That sounds really harsh. But what does the woman say? She doesn't say, this isn't right, that's not fair. No, actually, she models exactly what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. In the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. She was meek, but she also spoke up in her meekness. She spoke truthfully to Jesus. 
And she basically personified what Jesus said in the parable of the workers in the field, where the first worker at the very beginning of the day gets a full day's wage, and it's good money, and he should be really happy with that. But then later on in the day, people keep coming in, and yet they're still getting a full day's wage. And so even the person that shows up half an hour before quitting time gets a full day's wage. But the first worker, instead of being envious or jealous, is grateful that he, that he got a wage. He's grateful that he's made money that he can feed his family. And that's a little bit like this woman here. She's not saying, you should have come for everybody. What she says is, she acknowledges what he says. Jesus says, it's not right to take food out of the mouths of children and throw it to the dogs. Basically, he's calling her a dog. And she says, yes, but even the dogs that sit under the table get to, to feed on the scraps and the crumbs. A dog lying under the table is eventually going to get enough scraps and crumbs to actually be fed, which is the point of the table. And so Jesus actually praises her for her faith. He praises her for her faith in realizing that this Jewish Messiah had come first and foremost for the Jews. Because at this time, he had not yet been crucified. At this time, the, the ransom for sin had not yet been paid. He hadn't been crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. And so the Holy Spirit had not yet come. The Holy, the, uh, the holy of Holies in the temple, the curtain covering it had not yet been torn in two so that everyone, everyone might have equal access to God. None of those things had happened yet. And so Jesus was correct. His mission, why he came, was first and foremost to the lost people of God's covenant chosen family, the children of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And so again, we see that divide, Jews and not Jews, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and the nations. But then, but then the cross happened. Then Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. And then, Everyone who trusts in the name of Jesus has equal and immediate and full access to God who adopts him, who adopts them as his beloved children, who pours out his love for them. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. The promises of bringing all of the nations into the family of God starts to be fulfilled. Flash forward a couple of decades. So if Jesus is crucified sometime between 30 and 35 A.D., Flash forward a couple decades, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And that's where we are today in Ephesians 2. That church in Ephesus was probably made up of a lot of dispersed Jews and a lot of converted Gentile pagans. They were all united together under the banner of Christ. And so in verse 11, he starts out, Therefore... And anytime you see that, when you're reading, well, anything, but especially the Bible, anytime you see that, you have to say, okay, that clearly refers to something before this sentence. So what's, what's he talking about? Now, this was, we covered the previous sentence three weeks ago, so you might not remember. But right before this sentence in verse 11, Paul had talked about the fact that salvation through Christ and even the faith to believe that that was possible was all a gift from God himself, not through anything that we did so that none of us have anything to brag about. And he goes on to say that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus from before the foundations of the world in order that we can do good works. 
which God has ordained for us beforehand so that we can walk in that new resurrection life as new creation people, the life that Christ has bought and paid for for us. That's what he was talking about. That's the therefore. So verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, so he's probably talking to about half this church in Ephesus, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is a thing made in the flesh by hands. Let me pause for a second there. This is, this is actually going back to Abraham. This is going back to, to Genesis 12 and 15. This is Abraham covenant stuff. So God makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to bless you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a nation and descendants and land and I'm going to make you a blessing. And if we break this covenant, by the way, you can't break it. Only I can break it, but I'm not going to break it because I'm God. So that's, that's the Abrahamic covenant. But then after he makes the covenant, God says, okay, here's going to be the sign that you're going to give that you are people of my covenant. You're going to circumcise all your male offspring when they're eight days old. That's it. And that was a marker that set Israel apart from the other nations from every generation after that. So when Paul is talking about you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, he's basically saying, at one time, all of God's covenant people thought you were dirty foreigners. That's exactly what he was saying. But verse 12, and this is where all this stuff starts to tie together. Verse 12, remember that you, and that you there is the the, the plural you, y'all. Remember that y'all, all of you, were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and completely without God in the world. So what he's saying to all the Gentiles gathered there is, there was a time when you couldn't have access to the promises of God, when you couldn't have become one of God's people. Paul is basically saying, look, let's be honest here. The reality is that probably most of you were born knowing that you couldn't be part of this covenant people. I mean, if Jesus was crucified and resurrected sometime between 30 and 35 A.D., We know that Paul was in Ephesus sometime around 50 to 55 AD when he first started this church, and he probably wrote Ephesians when he was in prison in Rome about 10 years after that. So it's been about 30 years since Jesus was crucified. So there's likely a lot of people that would be reading this letter in Ephesus that would have started out life in a world where there was a very sharp and clear dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And both the Jews and the Gentiles knew that the Gentiles were shut out of the covenant promises of God. Now that was probably fine with most Gentiles because they didn't believe in this Yahweh anyway. Because they all had their own pagan gods. Remember, Ephesus was literally the headquarters of the temple of the goddess Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Paul here is talking about how things used to be. And he's not pulling any punches or dressing it up at all. He's saying, you were completely divided, incapable of fellowship with one another. And you Gentiles were incapable of fellowship with God. He's not sugarcoating it. I mean, why would you try to sugarcoat what the past looked like when the present and the reality is now so much better? Because verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's saying you used to be utterly shut out. But now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. You have been brought into this covenant, set-aside, holy family of God through the work of Christ on the cross. Why? 
Because just as God made his first covenant family in the Garden of Eden, and just as he expanded that covenant family outward to encompass Abraham and his 12 sons and all their hundreds and thousands and millions of descendants, the nation of Israel, now he has expanded that covenant outward even more to the Gentiles. And this would have been unthinkable. To those who had no access to God and no part with the covenant family. But because Christ was resurrected as the first fruits of this new creation that God is making, so each and every Christian has died with Christ and has been raised with Christ. And so now everything's different. Now, it's always a good idea, and it's never cringy at all when a white guy in his late 40s starts to quote rap lyrics. It always goes really well. That being said, um, there was a, a song that came out about a year ago by a Christian hip-hop artist named KB that includes the line, Life ain't been the same since death died. I heard that a couple weeks ago, and it just stuck with me. This resurrection life that we all live, that every single Christian lives through Christ, this shared life as part of God's new creation family, nothing has to be the same. Nothing has to be the way that everyone else does things. Life ain't been the same since death died. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. Death was defeated on the cross. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? If death died on the cross, if Jesus trampled hell and Satan under his feet, then everything is different now. And part of that is that there is no longer any dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Everyone in the church is part of one family, the covenant family of God. Because, this is verse 14, because he himself, this is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus himself is our peace. He is the peace that we have between each other because he is the peace that we have with God. And because of that peace that we have with God, we have peace within the church. And I don't just mean this church, I mean the church worldwide. It's why we pass the peace every week as part of our worship service. We say the peace of Christ be always with you. And everyone answers, and also with you. Why? Why do we inherently, fundamentally, definitionally have peace with one another in this church? Is it because we all decided to? Is it because of something we did? No. It's because each of us have peace with God through Christ. And so if each of us are directly connected to God through Christ that each of us, by extension, are connected to one another. And this is where Paul starts to hint at what he's going to be talking about for most of the rest of this letter. He's saying you already, definitionally, you inherently have peace with one another. Act like it. The fundamental underlying condition of your existence has changed. You have been brought into a covenant family that has peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus. And if you mess it up, and you will, then you repent of your sins and you forgive one another of their sins. And we restore that peace with one another because the peace that we have with God through Christ is constant and unbreakable. The peace that we have with one another 
is an underlying condition of our lives as members of the covenant community of God. And we sometimes don't act like it. Paul is encouraging the Ephesians and he's encouraging us to walk in the new reality of being followers of Christ. And sometimes we don't act like it. I've said it before, Ephesians, Paul is talking about unity and holiness. Unity and holiness. You are one people, Christians. You are part of the one covenant family of God. We already have unity, and yet we're constantly commanded to pursue more unity. But the unity that we have is actually a fundamental underlying condition. So Paul is saying, walk in that. Press more into that. Explore that more fully. And... Christian, you are holy. You are already holy. It's not because of anything that you did. It's not by your own righteousness. It's by Christ's righteousness on your behalf. And so we're already holy. We're already set aside. We're already saints. And yet, we're commanded to pursue even more holiness. But our inherent holiness is a fundamental underlying condition that was given to us. And so walk in that, pursue that, press more fully into that. Verse 19. So then, kind of, he's he's wrapping up this section. So then, given all that, you are no longer strangers and aliens, which are two things that the Jews used to call the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints, all the Haggioi, the holy ones, and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom this whole structure, his entire worldwide one holy Catholic apostolic church, this whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, that's y'all again, in him, y'all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The unity that we have, the Catholicity of the church, the universality of God's one church, all of this is based on Jesus. It's not based on anything that we do. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone of all of this. And a life lived in, in gratitude for who he is and in what he did for us is a life lived in the pursuit of the things that he told us to care about. And so this reminder by Paul of peace and reconciliation that we have with God is also a reminder for us to pursue peace and reconciliation with one another. There have always, throughout history, there have always been good Christians who seek to live life and see the world through a biblical lens. And yet, they carefully and faithfully come to very different conclusions on things. And so what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we're supposed to try to grow in wisdom. How do we do that? By having difficult conversations. Find someone that you know you disagree with and talk to them. Have the courage of your convictions and the humility to consider someone else's point of view. And as we seek to more fully press into this unity and holiness that God calls us to, on the unity part, if you are holding on to a wrong that one of your brothers in Christ did to you. Go to him. Go to him. Be reconciled to him. It won't be easy, but do it. Go and be reconciled. If you've 
wronged, if you've wronged one of your sisters in Christ, go to her and repent. That won't be easy, but do it anyway. Go and be reconciled. Pursue the unity and holiness that we already live in, that's already definitional to who we are. Pursue that. Christ has reconciled us to the Father. Christ has broken down this dividing line that could never be broken. He's broken it down, this dividing line between Jew and Gentile, by exploding the category of God's covenant family outward to encompass the entire earth, to encompass people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In the past, God's covenant family was ethnic and it was national, with a a smattering of people coming in from the outside nation saying, hey, this is great. How do I get to be a part of this? And the Jews would say, be circumcised and live like we do. But now, through Jesus redeeming us, through the shed blood on the cross, everyone who trusts in this redemption, everyone who believes in the name of Jesus is part of this people, part of this covenant family. But we still have people coming in and saying, hey, this is great. How do I get to be a part of this? And so now, on this side of the cross, we don't say be circumcised and live like us. We say repent and be baptized and commit your life to following all that Jesus commanded. And by the way, following all that Jesus commanded is the exact same thing as walking with Jesus, which is the exact same thing as pursuing holiness. So with that unity of purpose to follow a life, to pursue a life following Christ, The church, and by that I mean both the church worldwide and this church, the church can move forward together to tell others about this resurrection life that we get to live because life ain't been the same since death died. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the words of your Holy Scripture. We thank you that they are as relevant to us today as they were to the church in Ephesus in 60 AD, or whenever it was first sent. We ask that you would use this time that we have in your word. We ask that you would use it to to change us. We ask that you would would use it to, to prick our conscience. And we ask that you would use it to turn our eyes more fully to Jesus because he is the cornerstone of all of this. This is all done by him and with him and in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.